Welcome, and thanks for listening to AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Today's episode is Soil Health Metrics for a Better Tomorrow. Here's your host, Laura Hankey. All right. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Christine, thanks for joining us here this morning. That's great to be here. Yeah, well, we're excited to learn more about the work that you guys are doing there at the Soil Health Institute. So with that, let's get started by a conversation around what the Soil Health Institute is and some of your most recent work. Okay, well, Soil Health Institute is a 501c nonprofit, and our mission is to safeguard and enhance the vitality and productivity of soil through scientific research and advancement. And then now you probably say, okay, what's that? <laughs> and when we talk about the, you know, safeguard and enhance the vitality and productivity of soil, I know this is an ag um, podcast. And so I think most of the listeners are very connected to what soil does for society and what soil, what role soil plays uh, just in everyone's everyday life. Uh, but, you know, in agriculture, we also have maybe even forgotten how healthy and how good our soils can be. You know, I've been in uh, soil science and agriculture for almost 20 years now. When uh, 20 years ago, I started my um, graduate work and I've only ever seen soils in row crop pasture systems and then, and then soils in other places, right? And when we work with farmers that have used soil health management systems, I'm just knocked over uh, because I can't believe how healthy that soil looks. It has structure, it has organisms living in it. And I think we just kind of get have gotten used to normal being degraded soil. And so that's what we want people to think about at the Soil Health Institute. And to do that, um, you know, ultimately we recognize that um, most of the soil in the United States is managed by farmers and ranchers. And so what we want to do is talk about soil health provide tools to those that are making management decisions about how they can improve their soil health and why they should improve their soil health. Um, think We think about that business case. Is it profitable to improve soil health? And uh, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that, but the answer is, you know, so far, yes. Um, but even, you know, once one decides to adopt or change their management to improve soil health, then we think about, well, okay, well, if you treasure something and if you want something to change, then you need to be able to measure it. So we have put a lot of research and thinking into practical measures of soil health or monitoring and tracking that's also affordable. And then, um, you know, I'm a soil scientist and I just love anything to do with soil. And so we're also just thinking about that whole holistic um component of improving soils for on the farm and off the farm. So we want to be able to track and quantify outcomes for all stakeholders that, you know, including those that are making management decisions and those in society. And then we also, um, you know, want to improve education and provide educational opportunities for everyone. Um, most recently, we've been focusing on uh, soil those that uh, are partnering, the trusted advisors of uh, farmers and land managers. And so that's um, certified crop advisors, ag retailers, independent crop consultants. Um, honestly, anybody that will listen <laughs> and hear what we what we have learned and um, anybody that's interested in taking a soil health journey with us. Yeah. So, well, Christine, you know, you say that 
you are working to provide education and outreach. And, you know, a, a decade ago, we were talking about precision agriculture being this brand new frontier in agriculture. And today it really seems like soil biology is that next frontier that we're approaching. And we're learning so much every day about how soil biology affects yields and affects um, water quality. And, you know, all of these important things that we need to have in our toolkit to be good stewards of the land. You know, when you guys started looking at these metrics um, that you developed for farms across the nation, talk about how you went about that, because a, a farm in Florida looks a lot different than a farm in Western Kansas. How do you make those metrics universal? Wow, that's a great question. And it, it's funny you bring up precision ag. That's what my graduate degrees were in. Uh, in soil science, I was working in precision ag. And I'm a soil physicist, uh, and when I came to the Soil Health Institute, I really had focused on soil structure and water movement. And when I first went out to my first few cotton fields, actually, that were in soil health management, I was blown away about what the biology could do. So it's interesting that you say that, because as a soil scientist, I've gone through that same track of like, wow, there's a lot to this. So the question really was, is, you know, how does that soil in Florida compare to that soil in Texas or Wisconsin? So the first thing that we did, the Soil Health Institute, we have this project called the North American Project to Evaluate Soil Health Measurements, which is affectionately called NAPSHM, which is a strange <laughs> acronym, but that's what we use. And we had that same question, you know, there's so many different ways to look at soil, uh, measure it, you know, soil scientists, you can imagine have actually over 30 ways to measure soil health. So we um, got all the information, uh, talked to scientists, made lists of what measurements we should make. We went to 124 sites across North America, Mexico, contiguous United States, and Canada, and we made these measurements at long-term research sites that had traditional soil practices for row crop, agriculture, and forage production. And then we also looked at those same sites that um, the same soils that had soil health management practices. And we sampled all of those in the spring of 2019. We brought the data in, it was over 2000 soil samples. We had labs do all of the measurements and we evaluated like, what are the measurements that seem to work robustly across the continent? And, and those that do change, you know, we know that like that soil in Florida, it's hot, it's wet and it's sandy. That soil in Wisconsin, it's cool. It's, it's you know, moderately drained, and it's that beautiful breadbasket silt loam soil. But one of the things we do know, soil scientists, all soils can be healthy, right? No matter where it is, even like that thin little soil over a piece of rock, it can be healthy. It's just not going to do the same thing as that thick, lush soil in the Midwest, right? And so the way we're thinking about it is we've identified a minimum set of measurements that we can make that work across the continent. And then the next thing that we do is we thought about, okay, so, and this is the question I was tasked with when I came to Soil Health Institute, it's like, okay, we, we have these three measurements. Um, we ask a farmer to go take the measurement and the farmer comes back with these measurements and goes, okay, I have my soil health, I've measured it. How healthy is my soil and how healthy can my soil be? And so the way we've thought about it is we've, we've come up with this concept called soil health targets where we um, have looked at the soil map in the United States and we have grouped soils across the US that we think have similar soil health potential, right? So 
that beautiful silt loam in Wisconsin is very different from that, that sandy soil in, in Florida. And even Wisconsin, you know, that soil at the bottom of the hill versus that soil at the top of the hill, we know they have different soil health too. But we've kept it in, in pretty large groupings so that we can go out and measure these groupings of soils. We can measure a target soil in there. So we can go around the county or a major land resource area with NRCS or a local expert and measure soils that are in ideal management. And so now we have all of those measurements. And then we can go and make those measurements on a farm. And now a farmer can not only get their measurements and then go, okay, well, here's my soil health ind indicators. And this is what it looks like for an ideal soil or the you know ideal management of my soil. And then we could also even give them like, you know, here's the average for the area, right? So now you know where you are relative to um, other relevant areas. And, you know, you talked about being able to set these baselines and establish targets. What kind of testing metrics are you using for that, Christine? You know, learning more about soil biology, we've been able to also adapt the way we're testing and measuring soil health um, mm -hmm. just from a chemical test to a biologically based test. Are, are you guys using both or what does that look like? How are you determining what the results really are? Yeah, so you know we had all those measurements, and we just looked at what's available commercially in the labs. What are the costs? What measurements are redundant? What measurements respond to changes in management? And we got it down to some pretty simple measurements, like uh, soil organic carbon, which is something that we all are interested in these right. days. Everyone's kind of thinking about the market, and that's the cool thing about the targets is if you measure your soil organic carbon. And then you have your target and you go, ah, oh, this is probably how much carbon I could get stuffed in the soil if I changed my management. You know, when we're thinking about that microbiome, um, there's a lot of really cool ways to measure what all the bugs are in our soil now. But we can't link those measurements to function very well yet. Uh, that's just too new in the science. So what we focused on is biological indicators that are associated with function. So I know this is not that exciting, but aggregate stability is something that everybody you know, thinks about. And it's a great integrator of the biology and the activity. So, and you can measure it with a smartphone now. Um, so that's, that's one measurement we're really excited about too, um, that you could do that in the lab or a, a consultant could do it themselves. Well, I beg to differ. I think the aggregates are very exciting, Christine. <laughs> I mean, infiltration, runoff. I mean, aggregates are the key component of all of that. I mean, that is the essence of soil health. Yeah, I say the same. I'm a soil physicist, so I've always been a huge fan of soil structure. So I was really excited to see that aggregate stability, you know, nationwide and comprehensively responded to management similarly and um, you know, worked out well for all the soils and to be able to do it with a smartphone. Right, uh, but where we are today, it's just incredible. <laughs> I mean, even 10 years, so doing your, your um, graduate work in, in precision agriculture 10 years ago, did you even fathom that we would be here today? I mean, things are just taking leaps and bounds, aren't they? You know, I've always felt like soil science was pretty cool. Um, I've always heard, you know, early in my grad career, I would hear scientists lament, oh, nobody's interested in soil. And I'd be like, are you kidding me? We <laughs> eat 
food from it. We, you know, it cleans our water. It, um, our kids eat it when they're making mud pies, like soil is cool. And I always used to say, it's never been a better time to be a soil scientist, but now it feels like, you know, back then it was like herb herbally and now it's, it's big, right? Like, right. I even, I told my hairdresser the other day, I was a soil scientist. She's just like, I know what soil is. <laughs> and it You're used like, to be, I hope. <laughs> And you used to hear, what science? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in December, we're focusing on food security. And our first conversation is around soil health, because without soil health, we don't have food security, right? Right. And December 4th is World Soil Day, Um, just so everyone can remember. But um, yeah, you know, food security is important. And, you know, in the United States, we don't think about it because uh, we are so blessed with really productive soils and climates. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes those things you take for granted that are most important, right? And I think for, for us, we need to focus on healthy farmers, healthy rural communities. And I think that um, that soil health is a huge component of that, of good economic stewardship of our rural communities. And also, you know, soil health is social justice because at the end of the rivers and, um, you know, in in areas that sometimes we don't think about, you know, we can pollute them with too many nutrients and and runoff. So Mm -hmm. it, it is important for the United States. Absolutely. And you guys are doing great work around that. You just partnered with Cargill on a project looking at soil health across what, 100 U.S. farms? working with those farmers. Talk a little bit about that, Christine, and how that project came about. Yeah, that was exciting. So that was uh, one of the first projects that I wrote up when I came to the Institute. Um, And uh, I I was a little nervous about it. Like, okay, so we're going to go to 100 corn and soy farmers and we're going to that have successfully adopted soil health. And we're going to partial budget their, um, based on their management practices. So we asked them questions about what does your management look like and how is it different from when you were more of a conventional farmer? So we were just comparing management. And then our ag economist, Archie Flanders, looked up you know, standard costs of fuel and wear and tear and different kinds of tractors, et cetera, and did a partial budget analysis, which is just differences um, extra expenses and extra um, gains or or lack of expenses, right? Of farmers that have adopted primarily no-till and cover cropping. And it was pretty cool. You know, I'll just get right to the punchline. Of these 100 corn and soy farmers, on average, the corn rotation was earning an extra $52 an acre and the soy $45 an acre. Um, and if you really want to go into the details, you could look at it on our website. It's broken down by state and there's about 10 partial budgets per state. So it's an average. And on average, 88% of the farmers had net income increases associated with their cropping systems and adoption of soil health management. So that's pretty cool. But the surprising thing about it all, I, you know, was in on some of those interviews and listening to some of the transcripts and, and the, um, notes that were taken. And one of the more common comments that was made by these um, producers is that, you know, like, well, okay, what's the benefit? Why are you you happy doing this? And they talked about making more birthday parties and anniversaries and just like school events of children and grandchildren. 
they had more time. So not only did we find out they had more money, but they had more time on their hands because they weren't in the field so much. And after that was pretty, as a working mother, I appreciate having time to go pick up your kid from their volleyball, you know, watch the volleyball game and not just like run and grab them and then come home because you have work to do. Mm-hmm. So talk about what those soil health systems look like, Christine, of these hundred farmers. I, I can't imagine that they were all the same. They had to vary to some degree. What did the baseline soil health system look like on these farms? Yeah, you know, most of them were corn and soy. There were some um, some variations of small grains, and there were a few organic farms, which were kind of outliers. We couldn't actually average them with the corn and soy farmers. But, you know, most of them, um, all of them were uh, reduced till or no-till. And, you know, that's the big time savings. But then the ones that were really happy and successful with their weed management uh, were also uh, cover cropping. And I think cover cropping is a bit more complicated to figure out the no-till based on a lot of the conversations that they had. Uh, but, you know, the main thing is, is to, to try, um, start small and figure out how to do it. And, you know, with cover cropping, what we saw is that um, there was even better drought resilience and trafficability, like farmers could get in and plant earlier and, and more easily that window of opportunity, I guess, to get in the field was wider. Um, uh, But, but, you know, it, you know, there was a lot of talk about stand establishment and termination. And the nice thing is, is in those reports, we have that information and it's regional by state. So, you know, there was no, no no one farm looks alike. And that's the problem with, um, that's the complication with soil management, soil health management systems is no one field is the same you have to kind of learn something a little bit new, a little bit nuanced, and you're listening and responding to the biology in the system rather than saying, okay, it's May 4th, it's time to go do X, Y, and Z, and now it's May 10th. You know, it's it's less of a recipe and more of like a nuanced management system. So I think that I think that's one of the reasons why there's some reluctancy. Um, you know, it's just kind of an unknown. Um, and so one of the things at the Institute we really try to encourage is um, mentorship and, and speaking with others that have been successful in your region. Yeah. So when you guys were looking at those soil health systems and those farmers who were integrating cover crops into their systems, was that a one species cover crop? Or I know guys who are implementing up to, you know, 35 to 50 different species <laughs> in one cover yeah. crop, which is just mind blowing. But It really varied. A lot of them were one to two. Um, I think, you know, scientifically, it's really hard to find data that says the multi-species cover crops are better. What I really hear, especially in the Southeast, is those that have multi-species cover. If anybody gardens, right, you know that like one year henbit's really bad and another year your azaleas do great and then another, right? It's the same thing with cover crops. Like, you know, if you plant three species, odds are you're pr- pr- going to predominantly have one, but maybe the next year it's a different one that's more successful. And I think that's kind of a lot of the, the it's a little bit of a bet hedge having multiple species. Um, yeah, I, we didn't see a really constant trend. You know, what we saw a lot of is a lot of uh, small grains cover crops, you know, wheat and rye and things like that. And then, you know, probably some of the, uh, the, the more adventurous were, were mixing species and using legumes and, and things like that. But it's pretty simple. 
Yeah. Yeah. So keeping it covered, sounds like that yeah. was the key factor. Just keep your soil covered. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about size. You know, when you were looking mm -hmm. at these hundred different farms, did you look for an average tillable acre size or how did you identify those folks you were going to work with? Uh, desperation. No, <laughs> we had a, a lot of calls, a lot of people, a lot of networking to find those farms. We did not have a prescribed size. The size varied tremendously to hundreds of acres to thousands of acres. Um, one time I heard someone uh, tell me in the ag community that soil health systems only work in small acreages. And uh, fortunately, that person told me that after I just got back from a 6,000 acre cotton farm that was no-till and cover crop. <laughs> I'm like, no, actually, no. Um, I think it works for all size farms. And that's why it's just so important to interact with people in the area that have been successful, learn what works, learn what doesn't work. Um, and there's definitely different strategies for different acreages and rotations. And there's just no doubt to that. Like there, even at Soil Health Institute, we claim no um, special knowledge of how to do it. What we claim is that we know how to measure it and we can provide tools and information for implementing and reasons for implementing. But when we do our training programs, like in an area, the first thing we do is go find people that have done it in that area, local technical specialists and farmers. Yeah, well, one of the objections that you always hear um, around cover cropping, especially, and a lot of the soil health metrics that um, we know provide benefit mm -hmm. are the absence of quantifiable benefit. Um, you know, are they money makers? Did you guys identify any key practices on these farms that turned out to be across the board um, money makers, if you will? Reduced tillage. <laughs> that that was it was pretty clear because it's just you know, you're putting less iron in the field, less time. I mean, you just save so many resources. Uh, but yeah, that was that was the clear winner. Um, uh, you know, cover crops kind of ended up being um, equaled out from the partial budgets that we could see. Um, and SARE has published some work on economics and cover crops. And they really show that, you know, about three to five year window, depending on uh, what your issues are, cover crops do start to pay for themselves uh, even more. We found them just, you know, to be sometimes money makers, but most of the time neutral. But what the farmers loved about them is the weed weed management, weed control. That, that seems to, and in cotton lately, I've been working a lot in cotton and it's pretty important in cotton where we have Palmer amaranth resistance to herbicides. Right. Well, and as we see these prices of herbicides going up, ridiculously this year. I mean, maybe we'll have some more takers on cover crop implementation, you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to have more takers. I, th I think there's going to be a lot of federal support coming up. And um, I just hope that people get used, take the opportunity to try it. Um, and don't try it just to try it. Try it to solve a problem. That's one of the things our agronomist really points out. Like, what are the problems you're having in this field? And now how can we use no-till and cover crops to address those rather than using engineered and chemistry solutions? Let's use some, some more, some different solutions that have different modes of action, right? Mm -hmm. Even at herbicides, right? You start getting resistance, you find a different mode of action. Well, cover cropping and no-till is another mode of action for um, helping your crop succeed year over year. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christine, as we look at wrapping up here this morning, final thoughts to share with us. Um, I try soul health management system. Uh, you might be surprised. It might be fun. It might, it will be rewarding. And, um, and, and I think, you know, in the long run, it's, it's definitely the way to go to save time and money and uh, find someone in your area that has some experience, buy them a cup of coffee, have a chat, um, le- learn, learn the secrets of the trade. <laughs> <laughs> so is your team a resource in this? Um, can folks reach out to you guys directly for some guidance and help in getting started in some of these systems? We can help you find local experts. Um, and we can help you decide on what to, what you want to measure and and talk to you a little bit. But we really, really push people to find uh, lo- local experts. But we can help with that for sure. Great. Great to hear. Well, Christine, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. We certainly hope that you enjoy your weekend. Um, and thanks for all of the great work that you and your team are doing around soil health and implementing soil health systems. Well, thank you for the invitation. And I hope everybody has... Um, a successful fall harvest. All right. Thanks, Brian. I think we're ready to hand things back to you this morning. Thanks for joining us for AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Connect with us on the web at agisuretrackcommunity.com.